Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. For this episode of the Thin Green Line, we are with the Rule Badge. And the face behind the Rule Badge is Charlie Pitt. And if you go to our Patreon, our Warden's Watch slash Thin Green Line Patreon site, you'll be able to see the face behind the Rule Badge, Charlie Pitt. And what, what a great supporter of rural law enforcement, John. What a great conversation. You guys came from the same area. You guys talked about the Triangle the Emerald Triangle, which educated yeah. me. And I, I thought it was really cool because that's one thing I do. I learn a lot from you. I learn a lot from our guests. And it, it's pretty exciting to, to put this all together. And I think it was exciting for Charlie to connect with you on that Emerald Triangle there too. So that was... Uh, yeah, it was, it was an uncanny small world. And I did not, you know, I didn't know a lot about her background and her husband's background working up in the Emerald Triangle. And you know, working in and out of the DA's office and on the ground with us on actual, you know, trespass cartel cannabis grows all over, uh, you know, the hub of it in in Northern California. So she was really familiar with the med issue. She was really familiar with the environmental crime issue. Um, Definitely hit home for both of us, you know, and I think the three of us realized that for somebody that's, you know, in a civilian nature and not on the ground operationally, but to take those stories and blog on them and have such a high reach with her blog for all the right reasons of exposing these um, law enforcement safety and, and really rural environmental issues that are near and dear to us on the thin green line. Charlie's doing an amazing job with that. And she is doing it without traditional social media f- mediums like 
Instagram, you right. know, uh, she's doing this all on Facebook and doing blogs and, uh, you know, getting to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Mm. And that is so cool. We just don't have enough of that. So right. it was a great conversation. Um, and I think we went down the rabbit hole really on the technicals of what, what's happening on the West coast, especially mm-hmm. that she's seen firsthand that applies to all of us on an officer safety front that we can all take heed of, uh, those of us out there working the thin green line. And I love the, the rule badge because there's so much support out there for rural law enforcement and there's so much misunderstanding or not understanding of what goes on rurally and then i can't even say the word rural 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 <laughs> so used, used to have a rural route and when i we had a post office box i remember that rural back route. in the day <laughs> but for the, right. those uh police officers outside the city out those side those city's limits that don't have the backup that don't have all the things that your big city uh, police departments or big departments have the the support and, and all of that she brings that and she's not shy about uh, bringing out problems and, and highlighting you know people as well so uh it was a great conversation like I said, it was uh, cool that you guys were able to connect. And yeah, the rule badge, if you guys like to read blogs, great writer. Charlie does a great job and, and she does some you know social media stuff, but her focus is the, the blogging. So um, also re- yeah. writes for Police One on occasion too. So I think you guys will really enjoy this podcast and I think you will enjoy to, to follow the rule badge blog if you like reading those types of things. Yeah, guys, she was one of the most articulate, I think, intelligent and passionate um, bloggers out there kind of back in our play. And she comes from a family of law enforcement with her husband involved in everything else. And, uh, I was really moved by it and I've been checking the blog out now and it's one of the best I've ever uh, listened mm. to or seen. So you guys will dig it. Enjoy this one. Great. And this is, this will be our first episode with bringing the thin green line onto the warden's watch podcast platform, just trying to consolidate things, make things a little simpler for our listeners and for us as well. So this will be, if you subscribe to warden's watch, you will now be getting the thin green line, which I think is unique because it's those people that support uh, conservation law conservation. And it's something outside our box normally and, a lot of our listeners really enjoy that. I get a lot of feedback about the Finn Green Line, and and we have fun with it too, John. Because it's it's to be honest with you, it's outside my my box, which I, I just love going outside there and learning a lot of stuff. Especially with the musicians we've had, it's been it's been dynamic for me because I'm an outsider. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a real. It just adds diversity, and you know, it, it makes us. Uh, Kind of restores hope from being a couple of game wardens, you know, and feeling like you're in that thin green line by yourself and finding all these industry people from rock and roll, country music, desert racing, um, you know, every uh, special forces, military, I mean, right. environmental scientists that have reach out there that are as, as concerned as we are, you know, they may not be, you know, on the front lines of it professionally within domestic borders, but they're definitely as passionate and committed to those issues um, that we all thrive on. So um, this will be great, guys. You'll have it all under one umbrella, Warden's Watch. You can get the Thin Green Line uh, content, which takes you out of just a Game Warden story, but we're not backing off on Warden's Watch with uh, the Game Warden stories being primary there. We have Wayne's new children's book, which is awesome. We have my uh, my newest book, you know, Hidden War on there. We, we have Blades available. So there's merchandise to support the Thin Green Line efforts. And if you guys could tell a friend or two about Warden's Watch and the Thin Green Line being under one umbrella, we can really help spread that message. Because I think once people listen to this podcast or view it, they're hooked. That's the overwhelming response I get from everybody that follows me since I've joined and teamed up with Wayne on promoting this show. It's unique. It's different. You know, it's not cookie cutter by any means. And it, you know, it seems to connect with everybody. So 
if you get one to two of your friends or family supporting us, listening, that'll do a lot for spreading the message and we really appreciate it. Great. Well, enjoy this thin green line, the rule badge, Charlie Pitts. Welcome to another episode of the thin green line. And this episode is going to be Charlie Pitt. You guys are going to listen to Charlie Pitt for once instead of reader writing. And I think you're going to be super excited. Uh, she does a job that not a lot of people do and something that supports that rural law enforcement, those game wardens out there, those park rangers, those BLM rangers, everybody in the rural law enforcement area. So I'm going to be super excited. But don't forget, reach out to Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us that five-star rating because that helps us. That, that tells everybody else that this is a good podcast to listen to. So when they're, they're surfing those podcasts to see, they see, geez, look at all the, the five-star ratings on this. And that's something I'm interested in. So uh, your review helps us a lot. So please, please take the time and do that because I know it takes a little bit of time. And for those podcasts that I like, I got to take a little time and do that too. But I make sure I do it because I know how important it is to those guys doing a great job. And I want them to let them know that they're doing a great job. So without further ado, Charlie Pitt, I'm going to read a little thing that I found about you. And I will say we found very little about Charlie Pitt. As investigators, we always like to dig into the backgrounds of our guests. And uh, Charlie is, is a little bit of a mystery, and we're going to unlock some of that mystery today, I hope, Charlie. And we're going to unlock it to hopefully get you some more readers. And uh, we're going to get some listeners out of this, I hope, because this is fresh for you. So Charlie Pitt. I'm Charlie Pitt, Blue Family for more than 30 years. My training and background is in writing, marketing, recruiting, and teaching. I'm an unrepentant news hound, a data junkie, a word nerd. I use those things to write about everything important to me, rural law enforcement, the ones that love them, the issues and events, past and present, and the, and the effect of our lives, sometimes even matters of faith. So that, that's about all I found about you, Charlie. And when you read all these blogs you do, that, it's so limited because everything you do is pointed towards the rural badge. It's not about Charlie Pitt. It's about all those officers in the rural areas. And that's what you keep directing to. And in a pre-talk, we said that's by design. So can you introduce yourself a little to our listeners, Charlie? Um, just a little bit, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I am a writer. I'm, I'm, I'm not a law enforcement officer, never have been. But the stories are important to me because it's my family's story. And uh, I kind of got started with first a public Facebook page because I was driving my friends absolutely bananas, posting news links going, but what about this? But what about that? Nobody's telling the story. How comes nobody's looking at this thing? Like, oh my God, shut up. And uh, then a little before that, the Facebook page Humanizing the Badge got started and taken off. And uh, bless their hearts, they made the mistake of asking their readers, well, what do you want to see more of? And so here's me in the comments going, me, me, <laughs> I want you to tell the stories about rural officers. How come you don't talk about them? How come everything is Detroit and Chicago and New York and, you know, all these really big places? There's all these people out there. And finally, one of their admins messaged me privately and said, why don't you do it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I did. And uh amazingly people were out there listening and and people like you and like my husband uh were out there saying yeah that's my story we matter we're here um and 
the following year, I added a blog because some of the stuff I write was just really too long for a Facebook page. And besides that, it, it disappears after a while. I mean, technically it's there, the internet never dies, but it's really hard to find. And there were stories that I, I wanted to be out there for longer than that. So I added the blog in 2017 and here we are. Yeah, Charlie, that's really cool. You're doing that because like, like we mentioned before the show, I mean, rural law enforcement, especially as it relates to conservation and game wardens and the thin green line is pretty rare to find. Um, and we have a lot of mainline news stories that affect public safety, not only wildlife crimes and, and everything that's been happening in the last couple of crazy years that's underrepresented. So one, thank you for what you're doing. And two, we want to help get your message out so more people can read that blog, more people can see these stories, hear these stories. And then at the same time, um, understand what we're doing on the thin green line as it relates to everybody in the country, uh, you know, not, not just urban centers, not just rural centers, but how uh, the whole nation is affected. So kudos for what you're doing. And we want to just pick your brain on, on all of that today. Well, thank you. I get my best stories from my readers. Um, I mean, I, I search stuff all the time, but I get stuff by private message all the time saying, did you see this? Did you see that? I can't be everywhere. I don't have staff. It's just me. So you guys are great. Yeah. And every law enforcement in the rural area is part game warden, if you ask me, everyone that I knew, or we train them to be game wardens because we can't get there fast enough, usually. So that's There's not enough of you. Right. So we, we train these guys basically, hey, when you get a, a moose hit by a, a vehicle, you know, <laughs> I, I remember a trooper discharging a 12 gauge shotgun in his trunk, taking it out. So to shoot a moose. But um, mm-hmm. that, that was the idea. He called me up and said, hey, Wayne, what, what do I I've never killed a moose before. What do I use? I'm like, get your shotgun out. Big. Mm. something big <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that would be overkill for the coyote or or, or uh yeah a little california blacktail or something but for a moose you want really big you know something you can high center your truck on big <laughs> can you relate one of your favorite stories you've written about and i shouldn't say favorite because some of the stuff that you write about ah, sends chills up my spine, Charlie, not, not, not in a negative way, but that's exactly what it's supposed to do. And, and I've been there. That's why it sends chills up my spine. I know you have, because I did research on you as well. So <laughs> <laughs> actually that, that famous badge of yours featured rather prominently in a couple of my posts. So. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's uh, I felt like Wyatt Earp at, at, when it was all over being shot in the badge is uh something that I don't know too many law enforcement officers have experienced and survived. So it's definitely one, one of those things that, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's definitely a, an icon. Oh, yes. That's a great word for it. Mm. And, and I wanted it to be, cause they, they asked me when I retired, if I wanted that, uh, you know what I wanted? I wanted it right where it is at headquarters. <laughs> so everybody can see it when they walk through that door and every new recruit sees it and sees it and sees, Hey, this job's dangerous. You know, you could be by yourself out there and engaging somebody like that. You almost certainly will be by yourself. Most of the people that you're engaging have rifles, not handguns mm-hmm. um, or arrows. And, and Kevlar sucks at stopping pointy things. Um, but I would say the Colbert incident is actually one of my personal favorites as an example of things that get completely eclipsed by, by urban things happened the same year as a North Hollywood bank robbery. Right. And actually more casualties. And there were two law enforcement fatalities in that incident. There were none in the North Hollywood shootout, 
awful as it was. Nobody knows about the Colebrook incident except nerds like me who go digging for stuff and who research um, anti-government extremism. And the newspaper reporting about it, which was beyond spectacular. You know, you've got guys, I've, I've worked in newspaper offices. I was working in advertising sales and writing for travel and rec journals, but I'm sitting there right there in a small newsroom in a rural town in far Northern California. And when I was reading about their newspaper, it was like, oh, I've, I've worked with these people, you know, and they're talking about literally their editor's blood coagulating in the parking lot mm -hmm. while they're putting together the day's paper. Incredible, nominated for a Pulitzer, lost to the LA Times for their coverage of the North Hollywood bank robbery. In my opinion, that's ridiculous. Well, and but, to put it to put it even more perspective, uh, Charlie, you know, I was a game warden in the Silicon Valley at the time in California when the LA bank robbery went down. I never heard about that shooting back east. I had no idea who Wayne exactly. was or what any of his guys were going through. It didn't make any news on the West Coast. Exactly. You know, and that when you have not only a game warden being shot, but you have other law enforcement officers yes. and other civilian fatalities, and you look at just the the buildup of that case and how heinous it was. And, and going for, through multiple states. Right. And for it to get no national coverage is a testament to, to how exactly what you said, how underrepresented this side of what we do uh, is. And so we need to get the word out because people care and they, need they to do care. We can make them care. If you <laughs> tell you stories, it's not even just about what happened. It's telling stories. That's what people remember. That's what makes it resonate. You make it personal. Yeah. This person, this thing happened and it matters. And this is why you should care. And that that's, that's what I do. I wasn't ever cop. I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. Well, I, uh, I like to say, and uh, this has been said on many other podcasts uh, Wayne and I have hosted, but in all the gunfights I was involved in, all the cartel fights we were doing on the West Coast, on the environmental crime front, you know, it's, it's one thing to do that job. Um, it's another thing to tell the story so the rest of the country understands the dangers, they understand the issues, and they don't make the mistakes that we did through the growing pains of a very new and unique team. So I always say, the pin is mightier than the sword. Ultimately, Absolutely. and the more we can push that pin and the more people can read that, that, uh, that scribbling, the better we're going to be uh, nationally. So absolutely what you're doing is, is really important and we, and we need your help. And we certainly want to help you in getting the rural story out. Send me stories. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be plenty out there and rural people are so unique. Uh, they, they usually love their law enforcement, except for the bad ones. Uh, so, and usually, you know, those guys by name, if they live locally, uh, maybe that's changing you know their moms, you know their moms. <laughs> and sometimes that helps Charlie knowing their moms. Uh, I just talked to a sheriff, uh, this week and knowing the moms of a suspect, guess what? Got that suspect out of the house without a gun battle. Absolutely. They're yep. going to come back to mom, grandma, or the girlfriend. They're going to mm -hmm. be there. Yep. Without, without a gunfight. Cause he knew mom. And he knew that the son would listen to mom. And that, that's right. That was, that was the key. So, and that's rule, community policing. That is community policing. Absolutely. And to have all these DEA guys roll in, all these special operations guys roll in, and the, the, the community of policer that knows the family, knows the mother, knows the father, is looked on as hey, we need your help. 
can you do this? Yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah. And uh, the, to me, that that's a hero. And it's just, it's probably more dangerous than everything else because he's going in there, you know, assuming that, you know, having dealt with it, you, you take all that information you gather and then you apply it and you hope that com- it comes out better than it would. But sometimes when they see that SWAT guy snuggled in the woods or something, it could go south of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And the one thing he said to me, I won't lie to him. And they want to, you know, they, they get him out. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell him the truth. And that he goes, when you lie to these people and they find out you allow your credibility yes. gone forever. And he's forever. Like, and everybody will tell everyone else. And it's a small town. Yeah. 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 And exactly. And that sheriff was more worried about his credibility, you know, with a suspect than anything else, because he's like, I won't lie to him. I won't, I won't do that. Cause I don't want that. Well, he's going to be there when they leave. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's like making your wife angry, right? You got to go home to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, the Navajo Nation was actually uh, the, the article that was the most recent uh, Facebook post that I saw. That that the had one that I put wrote, up last night for the BBC article. Yeah, that was just so many ins and outs, and certainly goes into John's <laughs> area of these rugs <laughs> and stuff. And then going on the Navajo Nation, there's different rules and regulations. Yeah, and then you have non-Navajo Nation people going on the that that the Navajo enforcement can't enforce, and it, it's what what a convoluted mess involving drugs and all, all kinds. And then it overflowed into Oklahoma and actually a good deal of the state of Oklahoma is Indian territory. Wow. Can you just give us so, a rundown on that? I mean, why, why we're talking about that? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do what I can remember from last night. Uh, as both of you guys know, the cannabis industry is basically we're, we're, we're post-prohibition North Georgia right now. Right. Um, uh, until after my husband retired and we moved out of state um, and John, you'll get this. We, we lived in the Emerald triangle for the okay. last 17 years. Oh yeah. And I worked and, and for, it's yeah. all the promises of, you know, the, the crime will end when, when everything is legalized and regulated and all that sort of thing haven't really materialized because people remain people no matter where they are. And um, so this article that uh, Wayne was referring to was a really, really in-depth BBC piece about Chinese labor being brought onto the Navajo nation Mm -hmm. to work in the cannabis industry. And one of the women that they were interviewing, one of the immigrants uh, told them she she was told that she was going to be trimming flowers. I love flowers. I want to do that. That's good money. I can do that. And so she finds herself in a truck, you know, trimming weed. And uh, that's not really what she had in mind, but she wasn't in charge of her fate at that point. And the money was good compared to what she was able to get where she had come from. Um, And some aspects of trafficking start to seep into that because she is being paid, but she really doesn't have any grasp of where she is. She doesn't have any control over whether she can leave or where she goes when she leaves. Um, The neighbors there on, on, the reservation are looking out and seeing lights pop up and rows and rows and rows and rows of hoop houses being built and truck after truck after truck of labor being brought in and looking at it and going, wait, what? There's a ton of paperwork that goes into starting a new industry um, on a sovereign nation. And none of those boxes had been checked. 
And then when one of the women that was um, a resident of the reservation pushed back a little bit, talked to the people that are running the industry and said, what is going on here? She found herself being threatened, her mother who lived with her being threatened. And her response was back this, I'm, I, I'm going to go get my own gun. And so she did. She's used to looking after herself. Now we have a pushback with armed security and residents of the nation who are saying, this is not what I signed up for you. You're abusing my land. You're abusing my water. You're bringing in non-native people working here without any regulation, whatever. Um, you know, things like the FLSA and OSHA get a little shaky on sovereign territory. Um, and it just went from there. And then when federal agents began to finally be involved, the process is super slow. It was really entrenched at that point. Uh, and the response for some of the people who were running the weed grows there was to load up all the labor they had brought in it and start shipping people east. Um, one of the women ended up in um, a spa, um, a massage business in Oklahoma. And uh, so that started, you know, making connections with one of the more recent mass shootings that we had there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, you know, that we're looking at this and going, this is illicit drug trade where you have violations of a sovereign nation. We have a, any number of environmental violations. And then we're now we're, we're stepping over into labor trafficking as well. And it is, it's a disaster and no one can be in charge because the tribal police don't have the authority to enforce drug regulations and they don't have the authority to enforce immigration and the local police and the local sheriffs can't do anything at all on sovereign territory and the feds take forever to get there. So it's a disaster. No, it, it absolutely is, Charlie. And it's interesting you mentioned being from the Emerald Triangle and our cannabis enforcement teams, uh, the MET team that I helped form up uh, in California. We've been dealing with that problem, not only on sovereign nation, yeah. but on all over the area you live in yeah. the Emerald Triangle and really all of California. And two things that are, that are happening here that the public isn't getting wind of. One is that exactly what you said, with these Chinese laborers getting trafficked into these growth sites and having no idea what they're actually getting into. Absolutely. Once Not they even where they are. You know, and um, I know you're probably familiar with the Netflix series, uh, that limited series, Murder Mountain, when it came out. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of our footage of our team got a, kind of put in there that we didn't know about whether you wanted it or not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the cool <laughs> thing about that, the cool thing about that story was I think it captured exactly the level of criminality and the level uh -huh. of brutality and the, the level of uh, murders and uh, missing persons. Yep. And something that so many people have not really taken into account is what you said at the beginning of, of uh, this story is regulation and how it's working and how it's not working. Yeah. Um, as an example, uh, our cannabis enforcement program teams, uh, one of my MET partners, who's now a captain of one of those teams, they seized 10,000 pounds of processed marijuana yes. last week in four tractor trailers, basically long haul trucking rigs <laughs> coming right from those grows that you're talking about with no manifest yep. for out of state trespass sales mm -hmm. and all kinds of illegal trafficked workers were under horrible conditions doing the work on that weed. So, um, but no one's hearing that story no. and no one's hearing the environmental impacts as it affects to game wardens like me and Wayne, rural deputies, like we're the background with you and your husband yeah. and what you guys were having to face up there um, that, that affects the community much deeper than just a people crime or a drug crime or anything like that. So it goes very deep. 
And it's certainly not limited to California, as you know, and um, people aren't getting that story. So the more you're doing to put that out there, and it's it's ironic that we've talked about so many of these cases prior to having you on, and now we're seeing you reporting it from your side. It's critical stuff, and it's it's pretty sinister and pretty heinous. And coming from California, knowing how beautiful that state is and how many how much resource is threatened by the illegal cannabis trade, you know, it, it strikes a nerve for sure. It does. The environmental impacts are disastrous. And I don't think that we, I know that we don't see the full extent of it now. And I don't think we're going to see the real impact for probably another 20 years. And it's going to be um, on rural officers um, coming up with, I'm going to guess. And from, I've got friends that are drug recognition experts and that have worked just totally in nothing but that. And these rural deputies that are, you know, getting long lined into cartel bros in the middle of nowhere where there's, you know, bottles of carbofuran just sitting go. around on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff like that. It's like these guys are going back then to really tiny departments that not only do they not have the appropriate protective equipment and see, this is where I see myself, not just as writer, but as an advocate for that rural officer, because you know that a whole lot of that stuff comes down to money. Right. And that irritates the daylights out of me because you're talking about guys, if they're so far back in there, they are spending not hours, but sometimes days in the middle of these grows. Right. And everything besides their own skin, everything they wear, their boots, their uniforms, everything completely saturated with all of these contaminants. And then they take it home because the departments that they're working for won't even spring for a washer and dryer in their locker room so they can wash their stuff before they wear it again. It's going in the same washing machine with their children's blankets. So we're going to see that kind of damage in the kids. I think we're going to see it in the schools. I worked in public schools for a really long time. That's the teacher part. I was basically spouse work is hard to find in, in small towns. So I worked as a substitute teacher, mostly at high schools for decades. And I think, and we're going to see it in the kids. I mean, I I would see kids 13, 14 years old, their after school job is trimming weed. Yeah. And you know, the crazy part of you, you mentioned carbofuran and how the cartels use that. And I talk about that in my new book, Hidden War, a lot, because mm-hmm. one, thing we didn't, one thing we didn't know when we started doing, um, you know, DTO, drug trafficking organization, quote unquote, cartel yeah. grows uh, back in 2004, 2005. And I'm sure your husband can attest to this. And I'm sure we probably worked with him and his agency, uh, you know, in the, in the Emerald Triangle, because our team was statewide. But um, we didn't know the depth of what carbofuran does. We didn't know the depth of, you know, this isn't an insecticide or rodenticide just to keep animals and people off the weed. This is a biological poison. This is a nerve agent. This is an anticoagulant. It this is. has ingredients that were developed by the Nazis for their bioweapons back in World War II. And when you put that in perspective and look at the science of it and realize that, you know, it's not only going on officers' clothing, all of ours, without the proper decon protocol or the support to get that. But this stuff is going on the weed itself and it's going on the flower and it's going on the bud and it's going in the water. So in the all water. These, and this right? is the part of California up there. That third of California is where all the rest of the water in the whole state comes from. For sure. That's where For everybody's sure. water comes from. <clears throat> and I remember I'm going to take us back to 
2016, if that was the year. And I'm sure you guys experienced this up in the Emerald Triangle because two federal officers back east had been so exposed to carbofuran. There was partial blindness. There was partial respiratory failure on one that almost died. Um, and then we got the federal OSHA standards where Forest Service had to completely stop going into grows until they could work out the decon protocol and what they could or couldn't do. And we on the state level were kind of hovering like, uh, okay, well, the guinea pigs, we're still going to go in and do it. And, and they do. And the sheriff's departments and yeah. all of all of the LE and your neck of the woods that were going in, we were teaming up because the feds couldn't tack the national forest stuff. But we didn't know and we didn't have the support of, you know, you need, like you said, multiple uniforms, boots that you can decon, nitrile gloves, equipment that you can, uh, you know, sanitize after you cut this and stuff. And used for nothing else ever. Ever, ever. Yeah. And, um, and, the, and the public and even cannabis consumers, you know, that may be complicit in the black market without even knowing it are supporting that industry, not because they want to, just because they're getting product on the black market that happens to be tainted from cartel sources and you know thriving that industry. So this is a story that I'm super excited that you're putting out there and highlighting. And I had no idea the depth of your involvement there prior to coming on and talking to you. So we'll have some stuff to talk about after the show as well, I think. Um, but this is, this is really cool what you're doing there. And, and Thank you so much for getting that message out because it's been kind of my my pet peeve, if you will, because that was my specialty and kind of still is helping, you know, network the message for the marijuana enforcement team in California and all the other cannabis teams nationally that are starting to pop up because we're finding this in wildlife refuges in New Hampshire. Oh, absolutely. Not necessarily Wayne State, but Indiana, Nebraska. Cold up there. Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're not up, long enough summer. Sorry. Yeah. And I fortunately don't have it here in Northwestern Montana on the Canadian border, but we have all the other cartel crap. Yeah. But. Well, and you get the traffic. Oh yeah. Um, and that, that's another one of the things like trying to get across to people. It's like, if you look at a map of high intensity drug trafficking areas, guess yep. where they go through rural areas. Big time. You mm. know, all the bad guys that they don't, they don't just like, I, I don't know what, what would the word, they don't materialize, you know, from one city to the next. They're not, you know, there's no teleportation involved. They're driving that stuff and it's coming through your towns. Right. All of it. Yeah. And, and definitely they're embedded in every state, whether for human trafficking reasons, for methamphetamine mm -hmm. production, for fentanyl distribution. So um, all of these stories don't just affect California or, Montana oh, no. or Idaho or New Hampshire. It's nationwide. And, and, uh, and you're putting that out there. That's what I do. I talk a lot. My brain is a busy, busy place. So, but that, that's my, my big thing is, is advocate. I've got like 15,000 tabs open all the time, but just advocating for the officers and the families that there is my, my goal someday would be that officers, no matter where they work, no matter how small the agency, no matter how far away from everything they work, they have the equipment that they should have to a modern appropriate standard that they're financed appropriately, that they can access training to a modern standard, no matter where they work. And see, this is one of the places where I start making people cranky. Um, a lot of right to work states, a lot of places where officers don't have the protection of unions or peace officer bill of rights. Um, a lot of states that don't have really enforceable state certification standards, um, those sorts of things, those impact the officer negatively. 
And again, it all comes down to budget. And I don't have a magic wand to fix that. I just know that it's completely unacceptable for there to be any place so small or so poor where there's an officer patrolling by himself who's never even yet been to the academy. And that happens in way more places than it ever should. There shouldn't be any place where an officer is working without a vest or where he hasn't trained with his firearm on a regular basis because he can't afford the ammunition for it, not qualifying. It's just going, going out there and punching holes in paper a couple of times a year is not training. Right. And rural officers need training as well as the guys in the big city. Um, I have had officers contact me privately um, upset because they have lost a friend who was shot and bled out from an extremity because his chief decided that uh, tourniquets and the training that go with them cost too much. Mm-hmm. I've had officers contact me privately upset because a friend was killed in a single vehicle accident because the brakes and the tires on his patrol rig were destroyed. They were ancient. They'd been below standard for ages and his sheriff knew that. And said it cost too much to fix it. Wow. And that stuff wrecks me. Yeah. And, and it makes me angry. And I can say that. And I can call that out. Nobody can fire me. I don't even sell anything. My blog's not monetized. Google says that I don't, uh, I don't write often enough. And it's probably because the stuff I write is too long. And I have to research everything to death because I'm a little compulsive about that. But it's like, the worst they could do is deplatform me and I'll go find another one. But other than that, I can say things the officers cannot. And that's what I do. It's awesome. Pin is mightier in the sword. Let's keep it up. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. And those officers you're describing it. And, and I, I'm sure John, as, as you're talking about it, I'm going through scenarios in my head. Cause I know those officers and I know those departments you do. and they don't have training because there's only two of them on They're They're, they're switching off. Yep. And their chief yep. can't send them to training because they have no one to cover when they're gone. Yes. Uh, yeah. Their budgets are really low. So to, to get anything and when the state mandates something, uh, they get it, but something then else why? taken away. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's, there's no real teeth in the mandate. So it, you know, there's, there's no incentive for anybody to find a way to fix it. And, but we're, we're talking about people. We're talking about actual lives. I mean, let's get away from the, the enforcement part because I'm about the people that are involved. Right. And it's not, it, there is a feeling of betrayal that comes along with knowing that you're swinging in the wind and somebody out there with the power to fix it knows it and won't not can't won't. Those are two different words. Words mean things. Right. Yeah. And where do all these bad guys go? It's kind of interesting you know, the murders that are covered up in the woods, you know, when they're trying to get rid of evidence, when they're cooking meth. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Jack Carr wrote in his book about Coas County, uh, when James Reese went to hide, he came to Coas County, New Hampshire, little old New Hampshire, to hide out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly so true. And we've had time after time, um, you know, uh, incidents in the North Country where I'm from uh, of, of national magnitude, uh, the Wilder case, uh, certainly. Uh, same town, Colebrook. I, I, I say it's like the, uh, you know, the central spot. Something's going to happen there sooner or later. I don't know. Uh, the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle, I swear. 
So uh, <laughs> it's like the Emerald Triangle. Just yeah. Google missing persons in and the place they they eat people. Those kind oh, of places yeah. they just disappear. Yeah. yeah, and I will say those rural officers know their area and know their country. So when they see the BMW up on a woods road, it all of a sudden their hackles go up. I mean, <laughs> that's out of place. Yeah. And when the, the Cadillac rolls into a small town with, with guys dressed like they don't belong, everybody knows. But then yep. the, the ones that do blend and, and are getting rid of uh, evidence and are cooking meth in some trailer in the middle of nowhere, that certainly uh, when you get there, I mean, uh, you know, picking up Along the roadside was always a, a thing that we did in the spring. And I told my mm-hmm. son he couldn't do it because they were picking up, no. you know, yeah, they were picking up liter bottles with meth cooks. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. Yeah, it's, it's really one giant hazmat. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they call the hazmat team now because we found 30 bottles within a mile stretch. So, yeah, the hazmat yeah. team got called and they, they just, you know, got rid of those. But that was meth locally. So and then when you find out, you know, there's so much drugs in rural areas because they don't have that, they don't have that all seeing eye, so to speak, or the bigger department. They think no one's watching. Exactly. And they'll tell you that. Why yeah. did you come here? Um, that's one of the things I remember when we, um, when we first moved into the Emerald Triangle, we had come from another Northern California town and uh, finding housing is always a problem just because there's not a whole lot of it. So some right. of it's price, but some of it's just, there isn't any. And uh, we found out that, that there were actual ads running back then in, in high times. This was in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and they were advertising our area as come here. There's lots of water and no cops. That's actually how the real estate ads were running. That, or there it was. <laughs> 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 That's the selling point. <laughs> well, there, there, that tells you the demographic, the target demographic of uh, tenants. Yeah. Wow. Can you guys explain the Emerald Triangle for, me, for an East Coaster? Oh, I, I, John, you want to do that? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we we can tag team this one, Charlie. But <clears throat> we've got we've got Humboldt, Del Norte, and Mendo, correct? If Trinity, cr- Humboldt, Mendo. Yeah, Trinity, Humboldt, yeah, Tr- Trinity, Humboldt, Mendo, and I still put uh, uh, in Del Norte. I even want to go into Lake, even though it isn't technically, but Lake County started to get pretty. There's heavy. a lot of overflow, and you have to because of the way the roads run. Yeah. So that was kind of Wayne. That's kind of the, and for our listeners, that's kind of what the Emerald Triangle is defined as the prime cannabis growing area of California. Um, it's the, where it was this area of the world. Yeah. It's the, the most world. productive weed production in this part of the world. Yeah. Wow. Some of the most, and, and Charlie, some of the most remote public lands like National Forest. Yep. Great sunlight, amazing waterways that are annual into big river sheds. Um, and, and watersheds that are just real pristine, full of steelhead trout and drinking waters for our tribal areas and all of that. So actually, way before we started to regulate, this was the hot spot going back as early as, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, but I'm going to say 70s. 70s. Early 70s, 70s. yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it was all black market because we didn't have a regulated cannabis trade in California at the time. And we had the 215 proposition for medicinal marijuana that wasn't really regulated. So the Emerald Triangle especially was producing really the world's supply and definitely the nation's supply of quality black market cannabis, um, completely unregulated. And it wasn't technically legal to transport it out of state and sell it for recreational reasons. 
but it was the black market trade. It was where the, other than the cartels, when they started up in the, I'm going to say probably late seventies, early eighties, starting in Southern California and working throughout uh, all the way into, you know, Northern California and beyond into other States that was, and Charlie, would you agree? That was the primary source of black market cannabis everywhere, right? Absolutely. Yeah. High quality stuff, especially, Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> well, and one of the things, you know, for the new Englander, perspective on size (laughs) just one of those counties Humboldt County which is probably the one everybody knows the best and is right there on the coast um is bigger than Connecticut wow and so you're talking gigantic territories for patrol um a ton of it probably I'm gonna guess and John you would probably know this one better than me but I'm gonna guess that whole area is probably pushing, especially in Trinity Humboldt, um, 80% publicly owned. Yes, very much so. So um, you have several things going on there. You have a diminished tax base for local law enforcement um, because payments in lieu of taxes are chronically in arrears and never quite what they're made out to be. Um, But also you have, again, like we were talking about with um, the story on the Navajo Nation, you have a lot of overlapping jurisdictions um, you have huge areas that are owned by the state or the feds that are patrolled maybe by one or two forest service officers and a game warden who usually gets to run from Trinity to Mendo and then up to Siskiyou and then over to Del Norte and back and forth. And he might share that with one or two other guys. Um, there might be a BLM guy thrown into the mix somewhere else. And then there's a couple of local deputies in each county. And when I say a couple, I mean that literally they'll have more than that on the department. But if there's more than one or two on patrol at any particular time, super rare. Very rare. Yeah. You know, and 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 they're covering just gigantic, um, completely inaccessible areas, dirt roads, forest service roads, gates, unapproved stuff. That's why everybody needs the game warden. He's the dude with all the keys. (laughs) you know yeah everybody know the game warden yeah and and charlie you said it best it's so crazy because every one of those officers game wardens or not were maybe in a particular patrol area once every two weeks if they're lucky um given the given the distance um and the other thing we got to remember about that particular demographic of the state because the the geography and the water and weather is so good for good weed growing is that we had a joke on the Met team that if we went anywhere into the Emerald Triangle and went to any annual stream watershed without even looking at a Google Earth map, we would find a grow in the right demographic, one out of two scouts, even if we didn't have any tip that there was a grow there. So you can imagine the thousands or tens of thousands or even maybe more than that of illegal grow sites we had with all those environmental impacts. Um, that, that was such a, such a time suck and such a, uh, you know, operational commitment to just deal with that part of the state, not to mention everything else going on in California, but yeah, it's, it's a very intense area. And because of all the drug trade that we started to talk about at the beginning of the conversation, when you talk about human trafficking, the murder mountain thing of missing persons and just people going in and falling into a hole and disappearing, we know the number of murders and missing persons is astronomically higher than what than what's reported in the emerald triangle because of the black market not a cash business not a legitimized business so obviously we have a lot of uh peripheral crimes associated with that and that is definitely an undertold story and i was happy that netflix started to talk about it a little bit we started to do it charlie in a couple of our documentaries we did internally with investigative news when our team was formed up we did some stuff with nbc actually 
right up in Humboldt County when the drought dropped. And this is something that everybody from the rural crimes background can kind of relate to is in California, we were in the worst drought we'd had in a century. And I know you guys were still working in California as were we. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm thinking back to 2016 and we were in Humboldt County and we were going into grow sites. We were actually asked when our team formed by one of the tribes uh, up in Humboldt County Hey guys, we don't normally work with game wardens. We don't normally work with or, or invite too many people in from a tribal police standpoint, but we have lost so much water from cartel grows. We literally are turning on our faucets and we don't have water to drink yep. <clears throat> on, you know, the big rivers up there. So when that happened, that was a real eye opener. The governor got notice of it. Um, but you know what? We had not had any press from any significance until NBC went in with us and we showed them the drought impacts yeah. from a cartel growth site in Humboldt. And when you're talking about Charlie, I think the, the, the number we were, and it's a conservative number, but 2014 to 2015, 1.3 billion gallons. That's a B not an M billion gallons of water were taken by cartel grower or, or trespass grow operations. And that was not a fact. That was not a figure that factored in, you know, the private land, underground. Yeah. They're not a cartel grow that maybe they're not using carbofuran, but they're still using water. They shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you could probably double that figure in our state's worst droughts. So that was another impact that was underrepresented to show the impacts of some of this rural criminality that all of our sheriffs were involved in trying to fight all of our rural police officers up in all those, you know, um, Emerald Triangle states and the peripheral states or, or counties and the peripheral counties I mentioned, in addition to game wardens and BLM and forest rangers. And we were still vastly outnumbered and vastly outgunned. And we still are trying to do the job down there. I'm trying to explain um, how things like water theft. Um, right. I, I, and I didn't realize how alien that was because I've been living someplace out west all of my adult life now. And uh, I shared an article about, uh, it was a storage tank at a volunteer fire department someplace in Humboldt. I don't remember. It was one of the smaller places there, a census designated place. And uh, I have a friend who's a nurse in Rhode Island and she's like, what? (laughs) She's like, they stole what? They stole, stole." to her that was like stealing air. Who steals water? You start like, no, that's, that's like the most precious thing on the planet here. Um, and to, you know, they, they dewatered a, a 10,000 gallon tank from a volunteer fire department, you know, yeah. and you know what the last few fire seasons have been like, honestly, 2018 fire season was like my personal last straw with California. It's like, yeah, I just, it just wore me out. Can't deal with it. I'm done. We're out. Um, but to, to steal water from a fire department for weed. So low. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's the lowest of the low. Yeah. They were, hard to, they, it's hard to even get your brain around. Yeah. I remember, I remember a case, I believe it was Mendo County. Um, and it was the last year I was operational as a Lieutenant of that unit in 2018. And there was a children's school and a little community center that had one of those 10,000 gallon water tanks and they came to school the next day and they couldn't Can't turn flush. water. They couldn't mm-hmm. take hours to do gym activities or yep. sports. And I remember we were staking out, water pipes and valves, you know, literally staking out covertly doing operations on water trucks coming in from illegal grow operations. So these guys could grab a load of water and go up, you know, and it was all tied into illegal grows. So you said it best, Charlie, how this stuff snowballs into criminality that affects the community on such a deeper level. 
And uh, I'm just glad we're talking about it. And um, and, and talk about everything about it more because it's not going away. You know, it's not. It's not. And, you know, it's one of those, well, what would you do that? I don't know. I don't know what right. the answer is. I just know that there, the public really has only a very small snapshot of how big the problem is. I can't think. I th- okay. I can think of maybe two murders in the last eight years that I know of in that part of the country that were not weed related. That's it. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. All the rest of them, all the home invasions. All the missing persons, all the murders, all of it. It's all it's all related to that. And and people act like, you know, the it's only a plant. We're not talking about your plant as a moral issue. We're talking about everything that attaches to it, everything that surrounds it. And I mentioned before, um, you know, we're 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 talking about the the equivalent of an entire part of the country being post-prohibition Georgia. Except that back in the 30s, there was both a budget and a will to do what it took to rein that in. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that we've got that kind of guts anymore. Um, there was, there was a lot of blood and treasure spent in that fight. Very, very much so. And, and that brings up another point when we talk about, you know, people think when we, especially when our team starts doing the work we do and, and your husband team and all the different uh, teams that we work with, let's bring your old stomping grounds of the Emerald Triangle into as an example we're not about an anti-cannabis message. It's not even really about the cannabis itself. It's about exactly what you said, all the nastiness that comes with it. And we always said, we're not an anti-cannabis team. We're an anti-environmental crime team and we're an anti-threat to public safety. And the bottom line is, I don't care if uh, the Associated Press quoted me once back, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago of saying, if cherry, yeah, I know, right? But if cherry tomatoes were on the black market for $4,000 a pound, We'd probably be having gunfights and we'd probably have carbofuran sprayed all over cherry tomatoes and we'd have poison kids eating cherry tomatoes. So it doesn't have anything to do with the cannabis aspect of it, but it's, it's, it, it's still going on. And something I talk about a lot, um, and, and I'm sure you can attest to this, is right now we're looking at not necessarily regulation being an issue, but how are we regulating? You know, what are we not doing in California to regulate properly? If we're going to regulate weed at all, what are the other states doing and not doing? And it seems to me, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, Charlie, that every state is doing something a little different. And every state has, rather than try to make it less of a black market, we've enhanced the black market because of the price difference, because of the interstate transport, because of, you know, a demand back east on the eastern seaboard where Wayne is, Midwest, uh, the big cities, things like that. And it's still quite a mess and we haven't solved it. So something we like to discuss if, if you've uh, reported on it or you have any thoughts of it coming from the old golden state, like I was. I have a few thoughts on it. I'm not sure that they actually fix anything. Um, one of it is just an acknowledgement that the way our country is constructed does not lend itself to fixing really, really big problems because we're composed of 50, 50 semi-independent states and semi-autonomous right. states everybody gets to write their own rules um i have readers from canada and from australia and from great britain and stuff like and and we baffle them <laughs> we just baffle them because they may have you know separate state police or police in different cities but they all have one set of rules and you know much to the enjoyment of their rural officers they all get paid the same and equipped the same and trained the same too so you know, everybody goes, oh, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And yes, I get that. But it's, it's you, you've got to, got to take the good with the bad. And there is some good with it. And 
I don't, I don't know how you rein it in when the problem is with border states right. um, that unlike, you know, our friends in Australia, they're an island. <laughs> you can lock down, seriously, you can lock down ports in a way that we can't change our southern border, big problem with Canada, northern border, big problem in both Montana and New England. For sure. But people don't talk about that northern border nearly as much as they should. But there's a lot of funky stuff that comes across there, both in oh, terms yeah. of merchandise and people. And yeah. uh, that that's something actually I would like to I would like to look at a little more. I would like to hear a little more about because that's that stuff that because of volume gets eclipsed by what happens on the southern border. But um, it, it's I don't think you can eradicate it. But I think maybe some interstate cooperation and looking at things more as a unit. Um, Americans, if you'll pardon me, get really into, you know, what I want and my rules and my rights and my local control, which, you know, is another one of those things that, you know, has angered a couple of people because I said, especially with rural policing, sometimes local control can be code for, I want a pet cop. Right. I don't want neutral objective law enforcement. I don't want the rule of law. I want that three-man department with a police chief who does what he's told. Mm. And um, that, that's not law enforcement. No, that's not. That's not law enforcement. Those are hired guns. We don't ride for the brand here. We ride for the law. And um, and unfortunately, we get that on just a bigger and bigger scale with some of the narcotics laws and stuff like that. It's, you know, each little state, is they're so afraid to cooperate because they might lose what they're in charge of. It's not productive. It's not helping. No, it, it's definitely not. You You hit that on the head when you said there needs to be, I think I totally agree. You need to have a more unified approach state by state by state. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at the country as a whole, if we're looking at, yes. uh, you know, stopping human trafficking, if we're stop, uh, you know, stopping a poison black market of weed. And when you mentioned the northern border being underrepresented, again, another story people aren't hearing about. And now that I've relocated to 30 miles from the Alberta border up a two-way highway. It looks highway, different, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, Charlie, it's ridiculous. And up here, my border patrol buddies are dealing with meth trafficking coming yes, from they the are. Border, human trafficking. And yes. now with the new border policy cartel from our southern border dropping mm-hmm. people in from a much more under underrepresented yep. unknown more wooded more hidden uh place to drop people in to distribute you know they're networking throughout the entire country so there's some stuff going on up here like you said that is crazy well and, uh, you yeah. guys have dealt with deer if you fence deer out what do they do they go yeah. where the fences aren't just the deer don't disappear there. Yeah, they yeah. just moved. You, know, <laughs> you pressured them and they left. And that's what what goes on with whether it's a state border or whether it's a national border. Yep. You know, if, if you build a wall, guess what? The Coast Guard gets super, super busy now, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Path of least resistance. Right. Yep. Yep. Doubt. Doubt. Some of the cool things, though, Charlie, I mean, I know role. <laughs> departments are lacking a lot of things, but what I really love about rural departments is the camaraderie. As a game warden, I get to hang out with the local police, the sheriffs, the border patrol, the customs agent, and the camaraderie among departments is second to none. And I'm sure John's experienced the same thing. Um, some of my best friends are troopers. Some of my best friends are local police chiefs that used to be police officers and graduated because of our tenure. But um, just just the camaraderie that develops in these rural areas and the communication too. when you go to a call, 
And, you know, you know, the guy so well that you can work together and your skills are honed because you work together all the time and you just know how to do it, how to do the takedown. And you're communicating that you're sitting down with him on a Monday, having a cup of coffee and you, you, you're going to, you know, a bad call on a Thursday night or something like that. Coming back, uh, the colonel and I were coming back from a speaking engagement one night. And there was a call for, you know, a a man that assaulted his wife with a firearm. So here we are on our dress grade stuff. We're pulling up and and assisting the trooper who is excited to see us because, A, he didn't know there was any backup in the area. And and two, uh, I told him to get rid of his uh, nothing against him. He was very young and very new. Told him to get rid of his fluorescent reflective jacket. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) not quite covert enough. Yeah. He was so safe. So safety oriented. Yeah. But that's, you know, when you're young and you don't have, you go to those calls and then all of a sudden the game warden shows up and says, Hey, get rid of that thing. Cause you're going to be the first one to come into that target area because of your color. And I bet you he remembered that for this whole career. I'm sure he did. One of my lessons learned was down in North Carolina. I went to Silver, North Carolina, the park uh, ranger law enforcement school down there for 10 weeks. I had a deputy sheriff, a woman, she was a very large woman. She smoked Virginia Slims. I didn't have a whole lot of respect for her. And she, I got out from behind cover one day and she hip checked me and slammed me down on the pavement. And I scun all my, all my elbows, my shins bleeding. And she started yelling at me, you're dead. You're blankety blank dead. And right in my face. And I could still smell the cigarette mouth out of that. But you know what? I never, ever got out from behind cover again, cover in my mind. And I, and I swear with my shooting, I, I remember that because that's, you know, cover concealment became so real to me in that moment from a woman that I didn't think I could learn anything from. And I will give her all the credit covering concealment spent so much to me. And for a week, I you know was peeling off all those scabs on my elbows and everything from this woman I had no respect for. And today I have all the respect in the world for her because she probably saved my life. So um, just, wow. just truly weird. Excellent. Truly yeah. excellent use of the center of gravity. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there is no talk doubt. About, <laughs> talk about learning the hard way, Wayne, but what a, what a, <laughs> What an officer safety lesson. Uh, it's one of those that stick. And, and I'm sure you've had them too. Those things that you just never thought you were going to learn from that you carry the rest of your life. And that, that was a learning oh, yeah. lesson for me. But that's, you know, those, those, those kind of relationships are just priceless when it comes to rural law enforcement and the communication. And, you know, when one guy, you know, if I roll up and, you know, I got my shotgun and here, grab my rifle, you know, those, those types of things. If they don't have that equipment, you know, if you don't have a brown jacket, guess what? I got a camel jacket here. Throw this on. And the other thing is in the winter time, I mean, I, I have enough stuff for the woolly bear because we have snowmobile patrol. Uh, some of these guys don't carry warm clothes. So if they have a barricaded subject or something, you know, they're out there in their dress shoes and uh, they're going to freeze to death. So, hey. You know, I usually carry enough for two, not three or four that gets, gets, you know, beyond, but I uh, carry enough. So, Hey, snowmobile suits. And, you know, we're always the warmest guys. We're always the well-prepared because we're in those elements all the time. And, and you don't know when you won't be. And right. You don't know when you won't be. Uh, absolutely. And I think your body acclimates it for sure. I used to, during hunting season, I would intentionally try not to wear a coat. So I would get used to the cold and I think it really helped too. I, I, Plus, I forgot it everywhere, too. So I never wear my Coke. 
So I get chilly and I eventually you acclimate to your environment. Your body just has a tendency to, to do that type of stuff. So, but I wouldn't trade that rule law enforcement. Matter of fact, I think we should take some of these city uh, police officers that are ready to move and move them to the rural areas because they are highly trained and get some good resources. And I think we'd welcome them because the people in the rural communities still like police. We still like police. I, I just I saw a stat the other day uh, from another podcast. The things that police officers see is the name of the mm-hmm. podcast, and uh, Steve Gould hosts that. And he had an, a person on that said seventy five people, seventy five percent of the American public supports police. Seventy five percent. So that that that's a huge number. Uh, so and who are you going to call when you're in trouble? Yeah. You're going to dial nine one one. So and hopefully you know that guy's not going to take an hour to get there. Like is the problem in the rural areas. Um, right. I always encourage my guys to work together because it's going to be an hour if they can find you. And I always say, if they can find you. If, yes. Yes. That's, that's and if there's cell coverage and if there's radio coverage and yeah, right. that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Massive problems in rural areas, especially when you throw mountains in there, like we're in John, John and I love you throw a mountain in there. You're, you're you know, that's tough. Yeah, now even your sat phone doesn't work. <laughs> Right. It really changes, right? <laughs> it does. But I wouldn't change it in the world. I, I love the rural communities. Uh, you know, one of my first uh, supervisors basically taught me Operation Game Thief or f- becoming part of the community. And some of the best tips I ever got as a game warden came from the community. And it wasn't because I was a local game warden. It was because of the relationships I built in that community. He wanted me to stop and talk to the farmer. He wanted me to stop at the mm-hmm. local you know, store and grab a coffee and know those people by name. He wanted me to become that community. And I, and I, I fear that we're starting to lose that. And I, I, I think we're going to lose a lot when we lose that familiarity, that, you know, that, 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 that personal touch that you know, the rural areas have. Well, very often those bystanders in a rural area they can be your backup. Yeah. And I think every officer knows that, especially, you know, they recognize the rig, they see it by the side of the road, they don't see you, they're going to come look and see. Um, And um, that small town thing about, uh, you know, if you were, if you were fair, if you were respectful, the guy you busted for drunk last week, may be the one that bails into the fight with you this week. You know, he's a different guy when he's not drinking and he remembers, he remembers how you talk to him. You know, and, and in his heart, he knows that it was fair. He earned that one and he knows right. it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Yeah. It's, it's really cool to see that. I'm sure you and your husband have those experiences from treating your public that you were so close to up in the Emerald Triangle um, with respect. And that was always kind of our mantra as game wardens that, you know, you're by yourself, you don't have backup. So your biggest tool is your, your mouth, your gab magic, yep. right? That's yep. of all the tools we talk about verbal uh, judo and uh, yeah, yeah. there it is. Yeah. A little tweak. And, um, and you know, my, my thing was treat everybody great. Even yep. when I'm writing a ticket, be respectful, compliment them, ask them about the family, let them pet my canine. There's no reason to beat down somebody. And those folks, like you said, Charlie, they end up becoming, not only your backup, but they're going to become informants. You know, I had a lot of people and I know Wayne has too, that we busted for wildlife violations, pretty heinous ones, but just treated them well. And they saw the error of their ways. They got hit really hard in court. And I get that call about a year later, you know, I've got this thing and it ends up being an epic, huge wildlife case that had I just gone hard line, there's no way alienate that individual once and for all. 
you're never going to get that back. And, and I think in those rural communities, like we're talking about here, it's super critical because we're not just going call to call to call. We're getting to know our community. We're getting to know our people and we're getting to empathize with their issues. Um, and they have to become our friends on and off duty in so many ways. And it's, and, and we haven't lost that nationally, which is the cool thing. Yeah, all the high level press right now in urban areas in Portland and Minneapolis and all these heinous examples of people hating cops and people leaving the badge, retiring early, quitting, chiefs leaving. I mean, that's not happening in the small town America that I know of, fortunately. Um, because we still have that support from the public. And I think it's more critical than ever that we tell that story now and that we foster those relationships moving forward or the thin blue, red, and green lines are going to suffer immensely if we don't. You have to give the people that are working there a reason to stay. Yeah. And um, they have to be able to make, they have to be able to make a place to live in those places. Um, They, you know, it's, you, you, some of the places are so remote, you can't commute to them. There's only one school. Your kid's going to school with kids of everybody you've busted before <laughs> because it's the only school. Um, as I know, uh, you've seen the series Justified, yes? Oh, yeah, I love it. Uh, okay. Well, seriously, I remember my husband texting me once here, hey, where are you? Because he thought I'd be home by then. And I texted him back, I'm in line at the bank with Dickie and Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, Yep. That's, that's, that's where we live. That's, that's us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was straight justified. Similar yeah. names too. only the names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's right. You know, a few of the posts that you've talked to me, whether it's on the Facebook page or on the blog, little semi-autobiographical there. It's like yeah. been there. Yep. We've done that. <laughs> we have still sometimes still doing that. Yes, indeed. But yeah. Doing it well. So for our listeners, it's real important they know what you're doing and where to find you. Um, can you tell us, how's your blog work? For those that don't know, coming into this totally fresh, because we're going to have a lot of people that are going to see this for the first time. And how can they support what you're doing and how can you get your message out to them? The best way they can support me is just getting the message out. Because like I said, I, I, with the blog and the Facebook page, I, I don't make any money doing that. I don't even have any branded merch yet. But um, the bet the blog is the rural badge.com. Okay. So Google it and that should pop up. Um, and the Facebook page is called the rural badge and, uh, it's just, it's a community page. It's not a group. So it's, um, my thoughts and ramblings and news articles that I think other people ought to know something about, um, commentary sometimes on laws or pending laws and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Like I said, I say stuff that I say stuff that the officers can't and stuff that I think needs to be said. Awesome. Well, there it is. The rural badge.com for uh, everyone listening and watching, check it out. We're certainly going to follow it. We're certainly going to promote it. And I'm sure we're going to have uh, several more conversations down the road, Charlie. It's super cool to uh, one to share what we all had in California, knowing where your background is. Uh, we're kind of uh, very familiar with that, but now you've moved up to the Northwest, not far uh, from where we, where we've relocated. And that's pretty cool to see. And, uh, before we go, how is, is it Idaho you're in now? Yeah, we, we've moved to Idaho and, yeah. and I just love it. It's yeah. a beautiful place. Everyone's been super welcoming and yeah, we're glad awesome. to be here. How long have you been uh, in Idaho now? Um, we decided to move here in 2019 and we, and we actually got here last summer. So, wow. Yeah. Nice. And my son got out of the military and 
came here with his wife. And so we've got family nearby and we've been separated for 10 years while, while he was active duty. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow. Good to have That's you awesome. guys uh, back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks so much. I Charlie, appreciate for being that. Guest on our I appreciate show. the invitation very much. Yeah. No, a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to let our listeners meet you too. So thank you.